All right. So you're tuned to the Michael Calderon show with co-host Vanessa Reyes. And we're so glad that you could join us today. And uh, Vanessa, how are you? I'm good. It's nice talking to you. Nice hearing from you, Michael. How are yes. you doing? All right. Great. You know, um, we had a, we had a great last show with uh, with Carol Roth and uh, and that book is definitely picking up speed. You know, the war on small business. I definitely mm -hmm. uh, continue to recommend that to folks. And we have another great author that's with us today, Jennifer Murphy, who is the author of First Responder. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us from New York City, my hometown. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. We're so glad that you could join us. Um, and, you know, your book, First Responder. You know, I, I was trying to think earlier before the show, I don't remember exactly how I even found out about your book. Um, I want to say that I saw it somewhere on social media, possibly Instagram. Um, I, I just I, I can't, you know, it, it's just one of those things. I can't recall the origin right now. Um, I'm sure I'll try to figure it out. But um, uh, I, I, I do think it was on Instagram, actually. I do think so. But nonetheless, uh, a very, very uh, well done book and very timely, very timely. I, I don't know that anyone else has has really taken it from the perspective that you have. Um, and, and this has been a very tough time in the fire service, um, particularly down here in, in South Florida. You know, we just went through the Surfside building collapse, uh, which was a huge, huge tragedy. And, you know, um, tons of firefighters from all over the country have been responding to assist with, with the recovery efforts now. And, you know, we've been doing a lot of peer support and one-on-one -on -one chaplaincy and, and just a whole bunch of things. And this week, uh, in Palm Beach County, which is just north of me, um, we did have a firefighter take his own life while on duty. Um, so that, uh, you know, and that was a 16 year veteran of the department. So mm. it's been a tough time for, for first responders. Um, but I, I want to talk to you first about kind of your background, because you weren't always a first responder. No, no, I wasn't. And in fact, I'm not the typical prototype for a first responder or an EMT. Correct. Um, yeah, my background is in writing. I studied English in college and, and critical theory in graduate school and creative writing. So writing is my life's kind of one true love. And, um, and then as a career, I work uh, as an investigator and have my own consultancy and have worked for years alongside of law enforcement, um, not so much fire in the private sector, but law enforcement and had always wanted, I come from a service family, there's service members all over both sides of my family. And I think it's to some extent in the blood and in New York City, I'm too old to be a cop, I'm 46. <laughs> um, but you, you can be on the street, of course, as an EMT, which is where I started uh, over four years ago. And how long have you been a private investigator? 
That, that's a good question. I think I started my first investigations job. I transitioned from being a writer at a dot com into investigations, I want to say in uh, 2003. So for quite some time over over 15 years. Um, and it's been a great career. I've, it's it's changed a lot in the years since I've been in it. But it's a one of those things you never mention at parties or to people who uh, aren't kind of in the field uh, because it conjures so many images of the cliche, like people will immediately ask if I carry a gun, if I wear a fedora, if I do infidelity work and follow men around. And that's, I think that's just what they think a private investigator does. Correct. Um, but the yeah, in, in that, say that again. The trench coat. Exactly. I mean, I'm a six foot one redhead. I'm like the where's Waldo of private investigators. I will never work surveillance. Um, and in the private sector, it's a desk job. It's a research and writing job. It's a storytelling job. And it's quite, uh, I wouldn't say boring because a lot of my work is um, not like chaplaincy, chap, chaplaincy but it is, uh, it's crisis work. So I'm with people who are in disasters, recovering from disasters or entering disasters. And I love the work very, very, very much. Well, you know, I, I think... Uh having learned about your background, which we can talk about as well, uh, particularly, you know, with your recovery and, and everything, I think that, um, you know, you are actually doing chaplaincy work. Is that why I'm attracting fire and police chaplains? It's, yes, uh, it's very yes, flattering for me. Yes. you. I mean, you are a part of the chaplaincy family. You may not be... <laughs> You know, you may not be an, a, a member of the clergy, so to speak, but but you are you are a chaplain, quite frankly. I mean, you know, um, e even in your EMT work, you know, your your gravitation towards um, those who are emotionally disturbed, you know, so, you know, working with those in crisis. I mean, that's chaplaincy work. Yeah, that really I mean, is. You know, the, the work I love most is being on the on the line with someone on the worst day of their life, uh, whether that means they've called 911 and my partner and I are getting off an ambulance or whether I'm at my desk and someone is, you know, having a bad news cycle or like you mentioned, just went through a sort of uh, a building collapse, a natural disaster or an environmental disaster or 9-11. Um, I love being on the line. It's a it's a kind of very slenderizing world in the sense that there's just no room for any fluff. Um, it's direct talk. It's straight talk. It's talk about sickness and dying and death and what matters in life. And those are conversations I cherish. Right. Jen, absolutely. Jen, in your opinion, how do 9-11 and what is the parallel between 9-11 and the COVID pandemic, for example? I think there are many, unfortunately. Um, I, I mean, it, it, it was, it made me heart sick to watch the building collapse in Florida. I think any New Yorker has the kind of building collapse tattooed in their mind from 9-11. But, you know, one of the, the stark differences between 9-11 and COVID and what happened here, particularly in New York City last spring when it was a, a mass casualty incident, was that uh, in 9-11, the hospitals were really braced for a flood of patients and, and no one came. So there was this 
sense of they're not they're not dead they're missing you know and you see the missing posters and you hear the helicopters and the smell of the air and the digging and the recovery efforts commenced um and covid the sound was sirens and there were ambulances flying all around and there were for a time people alive that you could you know there were bodies there were people calling for help whereas in the rubble you know the hope was just like to find to find a body was somewhat miraculous and there were there were not that many recovered so it, right. it was a different kind i think of heartbreak the other the other i think difficulty of covid for all of us it's it's global it's not a new york disaster and it's ongoing which is the real kind of uh like the slow rolling tragedy of this where we're all kind of numb now to the mortality data and um and you know new york is upticking because of the delta variant and the unvaccinated they say in certain locations and i think different countries are trying to find a way to live with it it's very different than having a singular event where planes fly into buildings um and of course in the immediacy of 9/11 everybody was braced for the, an, another attack and the war commenced etc and when a when a plane was downed in in the rockaways right everybody thought oh no it's a 9/11 related disaster right. and it wasn't but everybody was was geared up for that and i think with covid it's very difficult to start moving into the aftermath because it's not yet a post covid world no it's true It seems like just when you're starting to let your guard down, another variant comes into the picture, and it's ongoing. And there's so many unanswered questions, as you know, if I've had it, will I get it again, or which one's better, the vaccine? Or I mean, there's just so many things that are still being researched. So, and like you said, it's ongoing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so definitely. I think I read uh, in an interview that you there was somebody dying of COVID early on in the pandemic, and she asked you when she was dying, asked you to hug her. and you hugged her oh, yeah there's a there's a hugging scene in my book that book. really touched me because because of the unknown aspect of it and but it's just the humanity the humanity of this person she's dying and she just wants that physical touch which obviously we've all missed that during this year and a half i think it's already been how was how was that moment i mean because that's so humanity that's so singular i i don't know i can't imagine as an emt going through that side of the coin you know yeah i mean it's interesting that you said that i had there was an nypd uh sergeant who read the book and, and we were talking one night and he mentioned that scene as well and he said you know i could never be an emt like the amount of care and tolerance and patience and love that you have to have for patients in a medical emergency i could never do it and i said the same to him i could never you you guys are facing true evil in a way that you know EMTs encounter uh that as well with some of these like synthetic drugs and um you know severe violence which every city is experiencing right now that comes onto our ambulance too but i think the thing about being an EMT that i love and and it's an it's not a lovable profession it's a, it's it's by all metrics really difficult thankless kind of terrible work but it is the great thing about the people who choose to do it is they're not in it for the money they're not right. in it for to be thanked they're not in it um for applause like you don't get anything if you're an EMT besides overlooked so i think when 
when, when I fell in love with it, it was in part when I started to realize that we live in such a disconnected world now where everything is kind of, we live on the internet really on Instagram and Facebook and zoom and all of these apps and on our phones and, and EMS is a world of touch. It's really a world of assisting patients into a chair or onto a stretcher or into a hospital bed or helping them with their walker or adjusting their wheelchair. It's a, it's an embodied world. And I think that world to some extent is falling away and, and yet it's a very nourishing world. So of course, like in the moment, if a dying patient or an infectious patient is asking for a hug, it's very, it's for me becomes almost impossible not to offer it. Um, and then of course, like it's, you often as an EMT do the, the thing that's off the books, everybody on the street goes off the books constantly and does things that protocols say we should probably not do, but you do them with, as you mentioned, your, your humanity guides you. Right. You know, it reminds me of a meme that I saw uh, about a year ago. If I have it, I'll, I'll send it to you, but it had, it had a, a picture of two different manuals and one said policy and procedure manual. And then the other manual said uh, something like how it's really done out in the field. Yeah. You know? I mean, the, the shocking thing about being on the street is the difference between what you learn in EMT school in your training. And then what's actually like when these emergencies play out in the field and essentially you're trained for a job that you do maybe a 16th of the time and the rest of the job you're completely unprepared and untrained for which really is the the emotional labor labor the moral decisions you have to make the interagency components where every part is moving the amazing kind of small mechanical things that go wrong you know your stretcher locks or it's snowing and you can't get in somewhere or the patients inside a building but you have to call fire to force the door like these things are not textbook things and and i think that was part of the inspiration of the book is to really for in many ways it's for new yorkers it's for first responders it's a love story to that world and and uh, my my gratitude for that world but it's also it was really important to me to try and help civilians understand what it's actually like out there, as opposed to kind of glossing it over from some sort of aerial vantage point. Right. And, and it's messy. Yeah, it is. And, and I think for me, one of, one of the, the most, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's almost like one of the, one of the things that, pulls me in to the book, you know, is, is the human factor, right? And that's something that no policy and procedure ever goes over is right. the human factor. And, and in your story, you know, which is in part your life story as well, right? It's a, it's a memoir. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of human factors in there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people that made an impact on your life. You know, uh, you know, whether it's Father Daly or uh, Ilfa, did I pronounce her first name correctly? I know she accepts both versions. Mike used to call her Ilfa and Ilva with a V is how it's, it's correctly pronounced. But she, she will respond to Ilfa as well. OK, Ilva. 
I'll say uh-huh. it, I'll say it correctly. Ilva, Pat, Mike, yeah. you know, I mean, all, all the significant people that, that, that really, you know, helped your journey and, mm-hmm. and that really left, they, they all left footprints in your heart, you know, and, uh, you know, Pat and Mike no longer being here with us, you know, physically, but I think, you know, you'll always carry them with you uh, spiritually and, and, and in your heart. So I'd, I'd like to just kind of talk about those folks, the, the, yeah. the people. Michael, sorry, can I, before I forget, because I wanted to mention, although I know I didn't read the book, there, I did read like some excerpts, some parts of the book. And there was one that you read actually on that interview about your grandmother and how speaking about people who are no longer with us and how she mentioned that your grandfather still visited her. Mm-hmm. I think it was every night. Mm-hmm. And so there was some mention of, of ghosts or spirits that still come, that they're still with us, even though they're gone. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Because I thought that was such a beautiful and like touch, it gave me chills because we've all lost somebody and to know that they're still around, you know, it's, I feel like it's soothing and it's part of almost like a, yeah. an EMT is there to save and to help in humanity. And that's like another, another aspect of it also is, you know, once they're gone, but they can still comfort you. And yeah. but it, you talk about that. Yeah. I mean, it depends on your spiritual leaning and your, and your preference, but of course for me, you know, I'm Irish by blood on both sides. And my grandmother, when we had that moment in her nursing home and I asked if she missed my grandfather who was dead and she said, no, I don't have to miss him because he visits me every night. Um, she was so sure when she said that. And it really, it was a memory that, that stayed with me forever. And I have often felt with Pat who, who was killed in 9-11 and, and more recently with Mike who had 9-11 related cancer that I have felt very connected to those guys uh, continuously and posthumously um, through music, through little moments, through kind of visitations with, you know, butterflies or animals or things that are happening with weather. Um, Mike told a story, you know, we used to laugh at this because he loved writers. He wrote a book about Pat called What Brothers Do After 9-11. And he was very close with Mike Daly, who was you know, an, an amazing writer. Um, and, and he loved that I was a writer. He loved to talk about writing in books. And I, I raced through this manuscript trying to get it out before he died. And he didn't get to read it, but he saw the dedication, which is to him and Ilva. And he, you know, kind of granted me full rights to tell his story and, and to tell Pat's story and to use their real names. And I think when after he died, I reread his book, which I hadn't read in some time. And it was such a comfort because it's his voice and it's his stories and it's his humor. And he once told the story about how he dreamed of turning his book into a screenplay. And he went and took a class and was trying to turn it into a movie. And his brother was quite a legend and, and Mike lived in the shadow of, of his brother's legend and his brother's death. And and really made a life for himself in Vegas. But in any case, as an ER doctor, but in any case, he was trying to reshape his book into a screenplay so he could do a movie. 
and somebody read something he'd written and said, nobody will ever care about this. It's just the story of two brothers. And he said the minute they said it, they were in the middle of an arid location and the sky opened up and just cracked with thunder and the wind blew. And he said, you know, I felt that Pat didn't like that sentiment of <laughs> the rejection that we would, that this was just a story about two brothers. So there are moments like this where whether the bereaved is assigning a natural thing to someone they've lost, but it, I have to say in my book, the, in my experience, those moments are for me as real as the chair I'm sitting on. There is there, I can hear my grandmother's voice in me saying they're, they're alive. If you need, if you need them, they are there, you know, in prayer in meditation in song in light in the wind, all of it, they're there. Jen, for those, list, those listening and for me who I haven't read the whole book, can you explain who Matt, Pat and Mike are? Yeah, so Pat, Patrick Brown was a, a kind of legendary captain in the New York uh, Fire Department. He worked at Ladder 3 on 13th Street and was killed in 9-11 the, in the North Tower, uh, saving people, attempting to, to help people that were pouring down the stairwell. And I knew him um, through recovery. And we also kind of somewhat hilariously practiced yoga together, shoulder to shoulder at a yoga school called Jiva Mukti downtown New York City before yoga was cool. And Mike is his, they were Irish twins. And Mike is his brother. Is It's still hard for me to say was uh, because Mike passed away in October of, of 2020. But Mike was his brother who, who searched for Pat after he died and Mike was a New York City firefighter who became an ER doctor in Las Vegas and he acquired 9-11 related cancer searching for his brother. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Michael, and, and did you know them personally? I, I did not. I did not. I, I had met uh, Father Michael Judge, who, uh, who was the FDNY chaplain who perished in 9-11. Yeah, and, and Michael Judge floats in and out of the book. He was close yeah. to Pat. And uh, I really felt um, when I flew to Vegas, when Mike was on his deathbed, that Pat and Michael Judge were there. Um, I really felt like a kind of presence of, you know, here they are to kind of, to help him. Right. Where were both of you during 9-11? Everybody remembers where they were. It's like a security question on bank questionnaires now it's very disturbing really where where were you on 9-11 i'm like wow. can you not do that <laughs> wow. wow yeah i had already moved to florida i moved to florida in 98 i was in new york for the first world trade center bombing which was in 93 uh, my dad was actually in the building at mm. the time and and i went down there i responded down there and you know we searched for him for hours I mean, he survived. He was in the bar down the street. Uh, that's that's where he ran to. But um, he he died in 2005 of uh, lung cancer, which mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of that had to do with, you know, uh, what he had inhaled over there at the World Trade Center during the 93 bombing. Yeah. Yeah. And I lived downtown in New York at the time uh, on Canal and Hester Street. So really a one block away from the designated disaster zone. So my, my bedroom windows faced the towers. And so I was home when the, when the planes hit and 
saw it and uh, yeah, watched the building collapse. Um, so I was, I was here. And there was a, you know, I think, I think a lot of people have asked about COVID and, you know, said to me in kind of casual conversation, well, you know, we're all weird now because we've been in isolation and kind of uh, just flooded with so much death, continuous death and loss. And, uh, and so I think we're all a bit strange now and, and we'll, we'll, we have these strange behaviors that are different for everyone, but people are, are slowly kind of coming out of COVID as best they can. But people have said to me repeatedly that, you know, but you were on the front line, you saw more than the rest of us, meaning like it, it was worse for me. And I'm not so sure that's true. I mean, for me, one of the big agonies of 9-11 was a feeling of helplessness and not being a first responder and not participating in the recovery efforts and really just searching desperately for signs that Pat was alive and just feeling like, like a, you know, this feeling of powerlessness, which is, you know, not one of my favorite feelings in life. And, and so this round of COVID, when, when it started to accelerate here, to be able to be on the ambulance and participate and help of course, it was terrifying and, and tragic, but there was, it was such a privilege and I felt so blessed to be able to actually act like agency is no small thing in a disaster. Right. You know? and, 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 and go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I think as tragic as Pat's death was, it was very in line with his character of dying, helping people and dying with his brother. You know, dying, you know, he didn't die alone and, and he died doing what his life's work was was carved out to do and and there's a sort of um yeah there's something very in line with him about that right and and i know that uh, uh ilva was was in a relationship with pat right they had a they had a yeah you you have to interview her about that but they had she was kind of on record as the last um woman that he he was in love with before he died and you know, all of that was, of course, cut short. But when, when after he died, several firefighters and close friends of Pat's contacted her and said, "You know, he loved you," um, which is it's a it's a very sad story. But she's also really, I mean, who who is the better person to be in love with than Ilva? She's this kind of, um, you know, she's like a sister to me and, and was, and in my eyes, she is also a first responder. She really takes care of people. She really takes care of service people. And she's very good at honoring the kind of, um, legacy of people who, who perish. She's a real caregiver. Right. Yeah. We definitely have that. You know, I, I, I was remiss cause I, I, I meant to say to you, if you want to bring her, please, you know, she's in Iceland her. at the moment. Okay. All right. All right. But but you know what? We'll we'll bring her on and, and you can come back with her. Yeah, it will be nice. I mean, it's going to be quite a big fall for 9-11 since it's the 20 year anniversary. So the world will be paying attention. I mean, one of the most heart rending moments I had uh, with a journalist was these, these journalists from, from Germany came into town from Der Spiegel, which is a, a big German media outlet and they interviewed me and, and put me on TV and uh, they, they said, while we're here, you know, we don't know when we're going to be able to come back to New York because of the virus. So while we're here, since it's the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 in September, we're going to go down to the memorial. We got tickets. And I said, oh, did you 
are you going to the museum? They said, yes. And I said, well, you know, Pat's truck is down there. His crushed fire truck is in the museum with his helmet. So don't like, don't go see it. Um, and they, and I said, and you know, um, his brother, Mike is in the, in, or his brother is in my book. And, and the women said, Mike, and they knew his name and oh. they knew who he was. And I felt like, um, you know, I wanted to sob because I, I felt like Mike had this life where he was kind of always Pat's brother. And, and I felt so happy that, that people get to know Mike and kind of fall in love with him in the book because he's quite a character. And I mean, Pat was too, but Mike is his own man. I mean, he, he was, he was his own individual and it, it just made me so happy that, that people, when we come around to nine 11 and we think about the first responders who've died, that they'll have him in their heart. Right. You know, yeah. one, one of the main things I think about when I think about nine 11, you know, mental health care is, is really important and dear near and dear to my heart. So I have, a, I'm not that familiar with the MT community. What part does mental health care play in the EMT community? Is that something you talk about a lot? And it's, are you provided therapy services and things of that nature? It's different. It really depends on which company you work for. I mean, one of my friends who's a paramedic uh, and worked COVID and lost his brother. I think one of, I think it's fair to say everybody in EMS in New York City has a touch of PTSD at that moment. Right. Um, and many of uh, many of uh, a first responder, fire, police, EMS. I, I think it's arguable that you you get introduced to trauma immediately on the job. So it's not necessarily an event like COVID that that introduces you to traumatic experiences and mental health struggles. But my paramedic friend was was very upset and kind of enraged that his particular ambulance company did not mandatorily pull everyone off the trucks and give them what's called a critical incident stress debriefing, which you're supposed to get if you see something especially horrific, like children die, member of service suicide, mass casualty incident. So, and you know, the, they kind of offer it in the fire department. They, there are organizations, nonprofits that offer it, that have offered it tonight since 9-11. The fire department also has peer counseling and crisis counseling chaplain services. For me, until it's normalized and made a part of the kind of regular mandatory process, it's the first responder community won't truly embrace it because it's still stigmatized. It's still, it's getting better. I mean, I have many friends that are in therapy and, and there are companies, I know a private hospital here who has mandatory critical incident stress debriefings and, and for, for the paramedics who work the incident and really pulls them off the truck and puts them right into a therapist's office as it should be. Right. So right. You, know, you have to ask yourself as a first responder, as an EMT in New York City, if you, if you worked COVID and your chief didn't pull you off the truck and ask how you were doing and if you needed help, you got to ask yourself who you're working for. Right. And, and I know uh, I'm going to give a plug to the uh, IAFF, the International Association of Firefighters, because uh, they have put together, um, there's a two-hour online behavioral health awareness course, mm-hmm. which I took because I wanted, I want to see what are our members being exposed, you know, what are they being taught, you know, 
Yeah. Uh, and I also just completed their three day peer support program. Mm -hmm. Same reason. I want to know what are our peers being trained on? How are they being trained? Yeah. And and actually several of the uh, training videos were done with firefighters from FDNY. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was always good. You know, I get very nostalgic when I see my New Yorkers. Um, but I, I can say here in Florida, I don't know about other parts of the country, but I know here in Florida, uh, we have taken a very proactive approach to, to, um, what we do down here now is, is, uh, CISM, which is critical incident stress management. Mm -hmm. And, um, they've taken a very proactive approach. So, you know, any incident will normally respond with two or three folks, uh, peer supporters and a chaplain, if possible. Mm -hmm. um, one department, one, a couple of departments actually have full-time clinicians mm -hmm. or volunteer mental health clinicians that also respond, mm -hmm. uh, which is great. But, you know, something came up recently. Uh, I actually, it was during this peer support training, and, and, and maybe you can chime in if you have an opinion about it. But um, so I was the only chaplain on this training with a bunch of firefighters. And, you know, the instructors were all like battalion chiefs and, you know, things like that. And one of the one of the attendees said, you know, um, if if I if one of my members, you know, was an atheist and they were going through some critical incident, I don't know that I would send them to the chaplain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, I had to jump on that because I didn't want that to just linger out there, you know. And, and explain that, you know, when it comes to chaplaincy, um, number one, my role is, is not to convert souls. You know, I'm not converting anyone unless, unless they come to me for that, you know, um, and, and I'm not praying with anyone unless, unless I know that that's what they want and that they've requested it, you know, and nine out of 10 times, we don't even get into a discussion about faith or religion it's really based on mental health yeah. and 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 stability and and coping skills etc so uh it was a great opportunity for me to kind of dispel one of those myths because i think um people here chaplain and you know for those who who may not be of a particular faith or you know have really moved away from organized religion, um, they hear chaplain and it's like, uh, you know, it, it's like people in recovery who, you know, they, they're okay with a higher power, but not specifically naming a higher power. Sure. Sure. You know, um, any thoughts on that, on how chaplains play into the mix for you? I mean, you know, I have a great affection for chaplains and I kind of, um, you know, I seek out people who, especially people who work with first responders, um, because I think it's a, such an underserved uh, community. And as you mentioned, someone in Florida, a firefighter just committed suicide. The NYPD went through an epidemic of suicide, yeah. um, you know, recently, I think. After COVID, you know, you're, we've lost EMTs and paramedics to suicide. You're going to see more of that uh, in, in addition to the general population. So I think, um, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I also don't, I, I am there for people 
to meet them at wherever they are. So if somebody needs to get sober, then you're going to learn that I'm sober. Um, if somebody needs therapy, you're going to learn that I have done EMDR therapy, which has been very specifically helpful for me with trauma. The New York, the New York trauma recovery network has done amazing work offering it to first responders too. But That's great. I think, you know, to the point of what you're saying, the, in the first responder community, being part of the community is very important. Um, when somebody's seeking help, I think it helps to talk to other first responders, maybe more than anything, because they have lived experience and they have identification with what you've been through. It's a very effective model. It's actually an AA model um, of kind of like of a storytelling, you know, you tell me, I tell you back, like right. I'm, I'm sitting beside you, not because I'm have a degree from the University of Chicago, but because I've been where you are and I'm not there anymore. And so I can pull you out of that if you'd like or show you how to climb out. And I think that lived experience model for me has been really um, powerful when I'm on the receiving end of it. And when I'm kind of offering it, it's like the first thing I think to do is just think, do I, have I been in this position? Um, and if I'm not, I'm very careful not to speak out of turn and say, you know, I've never gone on a run where uh, an infant has died. I have, that hasn't happened for me yet. So, but I know someone who has, and you can speak to them. Wow. Um, you know, I, I think that's for me, very important. Well, what was the transition for you? Uh, what was the precipitator to, to you becoming an EMT? Yeah. Because cle uh, clearly you were from a different world, right? <laughs> so, but, but, but different, but yet overlapping. Yeah. Yeah. I'm from different, but overlapping is a good way to put it. Um, so I, I had a medical emergency where I had complications from a surgery, a supposedly minor surgery that went wrong. And I ended up calling 911 twice and I was a patient and was loaded onto an ambulance and helped and, and taken to the hospital. And I was profoundly touched by that experience um, of being helped and assisted by total strangers. And I wanted to see if I could maybe help people the way that I was helped. Um, of course, to, to thinking back kind of to 9-11, just feeling like I was far enough away from that event that I could finally think about, you know, do I wanna be able to contribute to the city as a first responder? Um, I'm also, you know, at, as a crisis manager, a, a number of mass shootings come over my desk um, each each year and in dealing with the aftermath and helping the survivors and the people impacted by the incidents. And, and there is also something that after working a certain number of those cases, you do start to feel as a civilian that everybody should know how to put on a tourniquet at this point. Um, it's an epidemic, mass shootings. Uh, and, and I felt similarly, I had a, one of my dearest friends who's a, a, a retired cop had a heart attack um, not long after I had my medical emergency and he recovered, he lived, but it, it made me very nervous to be around him and have lunch and like hang out with him when I didn't know CPR. And so I, I just started to feel more and more unsettled, not knowing how to do basic things to kind of preserve life. And I'm a, I'm a real fan and advocate of turning bystanders 
into first responders. It is, it is not difficult to get certified in CPR and first aid. It takes a week or less. You can take one class and it's, it's salvational. Really, really, really can sustain life. It also unburdens first responders and kind of demolishes this idea that only a certain type of person can be a first responder and everybody else just can, is, is the watcher. You know, that's not, that's not at all true. Yeah, right. it's pretty much how everyday people can help yeah. our EMT personnel, yeah. right? To learn basic, uh, yeah. Yeah, basic. I mean, anything is better than nothing. Absolutely. I mean, I was on the way, Felice, my best friend, loves this story, but we were on the way to have dinner one night and I got stuck in a traffic jam and everybody was honking. So I got out of my car and said, you know, what's happening? And they, they said, oh, you know, a woman and her child got hit by a car. That's why traffic is stopped. And so I just shouted out, like, are you okay? I'm an EMT. And they were like, no, come. So I parked my car and was not on duty. I just went and helped. And, you know, to know what to do in an emergency, whether you're in a uniform or not in a uniform, and to just be like, oh, somebody needs help. The ambulance is on their way, as is fire. They're not there yet. I can see the people in the street. Like, I should probably help them. And it's a very empowering feeling you know it's it's a bit strange to kind of feel like you're never truly off duty that at any moment right. um i know a lot of first responders who seem to attract emergencies they're riding the subway somebody has a seizure they're in a car somebody has a car crash but i'm not like that it doesn't happen often but it's very um i love that when it does happen i can act right you know i'm not just honking in traffic saying i wish you would move out of the street Right, right. Now, th those EMTs that that transported you, have you been in touch with them? Do no, they know? I don't know who they are. I don't even know. I have a feeling they were fire department. I mean, there were two sets. The first set uh, left me at home, which was a bit of a baffler. And the the next set took me to the hospital. But um, no, I could look up their, their shield numbers. I think I have them somewhere. Um, but yeah, that was quite a profound experience. I mean, it's interesting, though, how how that experience really shaped you. And, you know, I'm thinking my, my sister in law is a chiropractor in California. She's been practicing for, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 years. But she became a chiropractor because she was in a car accident mm -hmm. and went to a chiropractor. And that chiropractor made such a difference in her life that she said, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And there were you a know? lot of people in my EMT class who had similar experiences who either came from a service family so it was kind of in their blood and they were drawn to it or you know there was a woman who was in a car crash and went through a window she had a scar across her forehead and EMTs and paramedics helped and saved her and so she became an EMT one of my study partners had been in, pulled out of a fire as a young girl and lost a family member and she mm you know, was wanted to become an EMT and really, really had the same kind of issue I had for quite some time, which was really heroizing firefighters who they were like gods to her because they saved her. And, um, and so, yeah, those are really powerful experiences. And they do, I think, create such an impact on you that you, some people are drawn to kind of drawn back to that world. Well, the story you told kind of reminds me a little bit of a superhero type of thing. What is your, what are your thoughts on those terms? Because that came up a lot after, after 9-11 and then again with COVID. 
we, uh, we would look at our emergency workers, our doctors, our nurses, our EMTs, everybody as a hero, people saving lives, people there for other people, putting other people first before their own families, before their own life. How do you feel about that term being thrown around with about EMTs and people and emergency workers? Yeah, I mean, I think the work that first responders do is critical. I think it is heroic work. I personally reject the hero. Like when people call me a hero, I'm like, please, like, don't. I mean, first of all, I come from an enormous amount of privilege in terms of it's not my full-time job. I volunteer. Um, and I think at times it can be a troubling paradigm to kind of, instead of, for, for EMS in New York City, um, you know, they're, they're second-class citizens. So you have fire department, EMTs, and paramedics who are not paid anywhere near what firefighters are paid or cops are paid. You have transport EMTs who are riding on commercial ambulances who are some of the poorest paid EMT workers and are really just, nobody even knows they exist because all we hear about is the fire department. There's volunteer EMTs who are like me, who are working for various organizations for free, like doing it for no money voluntarily. Um, and, you know, and then you have the private hospital people who are also on 911 and doing heavy lifting and may make one more dollar than the fire department EMTs. They have almost no job security. And sometimes I think, you know, the way that we thank these people, air quotes, is by saying, well, you're, you're heroes, let's throw you a parade. You know, there's a recent parade in New York City down the Canyon of Heroes or whatever it's called. I was in California, thankfully. But uh, fire department EMTs boycotted that parade because they don't want applause and cowbells. They want to be paid and they want benefits and they want, you know, line of duty death parity that's in par with what firefighters and cops received. And and frankly, in New York, I don't know a single firefighter or cop who doesn't think EMS should be paid the equivalent rate, not one. It's a problem of the city. It's also a nationwide problem. EMTs are underpaid and underfunded systemically. Pre-hospital care is across the nation. Um, and so it's at some point, um, it's, it's got, just got to be time to bring EMS in level, in line with other, other first responder workers. Otherwise, there's kind of no hope. Nice. How do you think it can happen? How can something like that with the city's leadership or how does, how does something yeah, I mean, like one praise that the next mayor, it's been a mayoral problem for years where a mayor after mayor after mayor has categorically devalued EMS work. De Blasio has been a catastrophe for EMS, claiming that the work is different. For the city, I think. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's kind of achieved the unachievable, which is bipartisan dislike. In New York, that's very hard to accomplish. That's true. That's <laughs> hard to accomplish. <laughs> so I, we, we can thank him for unifying us there. Right. Uh, but, the, you know, the, the problems are systemic. They are, they're caused by a, a variety of issues. Uh, one is like reimbursements often don't cover the actual cost. Uh, you know, insurance reimbursements vary widely. They often don't cover the cost of an ambulance transport. The unions are at times fractured because EMS is divided into four different categories. It's not, not everybody works for the fire department. So not everybody falls under their union. Um, the media coverage is slanted. It, people, I think New Yorkers don't, you know, you hear pay parity, pay parity, pay, pay parity. And New Yorkers don't, like the ball isn't going in the basket. New Yorkers just can't hear that. And one of the reasons, you know, I decided to kind of provide so much of a, a, a scream for EMS on the street was that I, I think new, 
people respond to story. They need to hear how it feels to be an EMT. Yeah. They need to see how much uh, violence we face, how ugly it is. They need to know how difficult it is. Um, they need to know how violent it is and messy and thankless. And then the understanding possibly comes, you know, we have to change the narrative away from the hero narrative um, to this is work that's really critical. And it's not bad for EMS that EMTs are and paramedics are poorly paid. It's bad for New Yorkers because guess, guess who really feels it when you call 911? It's you. That's yeah. right. You, you underfund EMS, you suffer. Right. And, and then, you know, let's not forget about the challenges that the volunteer ambulance corps um, face, the yeah. challenges. Uh, but I will say that the EMTs, and, and I've met a lot of a lot of volunteer uh, EMTs over the years that worked for for different groups, uh, including Hatsala, which I know is a big group in New York. We're starting to see them um, uh, grow in South Florida, actually which is, uh, Vanessa, that's a group of, of volunteer EMTs that um, are from the Orthodox Jewish community. Um, but but they, they respond to all kinds of emergencies. Um, and, and I've seen them be quite a help too. But, but I think that, you know, when you're dealing with volunteer EMTs, you're also, I don't know, from from my perspective, you're you're looking at a whole different level of dedication and commitment, right? Because yeah, the, you're you're devoting time that is your time that you will never get back in life, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. I volunteered for many years. You know, there there are things that you when you volunteer, you give of your time. You will never get that time back. So I always say invest wisely. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's one of those things where I'm super grateful for volunteer firefighters, for auxiliary police, for volunteer EMTs, because those people are doing it truly with no compensation. Yeah. Yeah, no, you know, nothing in return. It's I'm not knocking the people that get paid. I mean, they're they're also committed, you know, because it's not high paying job. But to also do it in addition to whatever else you do, in addition to your full time job, you're out there volunteering, whether it's one shift a month or one a week. Yeah. You know, that's time. Yeah, it's time. And it, uh, it's also, I think it, it comes with its own, as you mentioned, its own unique set of problems and set of kind of um, upsides. But one of the things I think people don't know is that EMS and fire and police in a lot of areas that aren't urban are run by 911 is handled by volunteers in many parts of Long Island. If you call 911, you're going to get a volunteer crew. Um, and in parts of rural America, if you call 911, you're going to get a volunteer crew. And, and people don't really realize they, how 911 works in certain areas, but you are often relying on, on volunteers. And the difficulty there is that on the one hand, you get people who want to be there. They want to do jobs. They want to work. And on the other hand, 
you know, I, I think I can safely say on behalf of some of the leaders that I've worked with, we're very hard people to manage because there were kind of, you, you need people on the trucks as volunteers, but how do you discipline people who are going off the rails or off the books when all they can say is like, I'm a volunteer. Like, what are you going to dock my pay? I don't get any pay. Are you going right, to take right. off the ambulance? I'll go. It would be a free Saturday for me. Like it's not, there is no downside to me not doing this. It's actually service for me to do it. You are winning every time I show up. So, That's true. you know, you take a mirror off a car while you're driving the ambulance, it becomes a kind of like, well, I get a, maybe a little more leeway than someone else. Yeah. Um, so I think it's for chiefs, it's very, you know, EM, the volunteer EMS has its own set of problems. And of course, we're at the mercy of the fire department because they're in charge in New York City. And then you, we love working with people on the street and Park Slope gets a lot of respect in the area that we work, but there's for sure, there's a stigma to being an EMT as opposed to a firefighter or cop. It's the second class citizen first responder. Um, and then if you're a volunteer on top of that, it's like you are really the kind of clown of the circus, which I embrace, but there's for sure a stigma to it. Right. And what, what was your, um, I guess, if you had to summarize your goal with the, with your book and, and maybe there was more than one goal, maybe it's a few goals. What would you summarize those goals to be? Mm. And I got to tell you, and, and you know, and I've said this to other people, so I'm not just saying this. Um, it's one of the best books I've ever read in my life. Oh, stop it. I'm I, and, and I'm a reader. And he's read a lot of books, I'm going to say. I have to say the NYPD is beating Sydney on the reading front. But yeah, there's. (laughs) I mean, I've got a I've got a I've got bookshelves of books, many signed by the authors. uh, And it's clearly one of the best books I have ever read. And I think part of it is the human factor. It 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 kind of connects you immediately and you know it's 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 there's no bs in there it's just it's real it's It's a very real book it's a very real book vanessa you're gonna love it i'm telling you i I have to be a first responder yes yes we're gonna we're gonna get you one um it's just so real. It's down to earth. There's no BS. There's no sugar coat. And that's that's the way I am. I that's know Vanessa's the, the Vanessa's the same way, you know, um, it straightforward. And and that's the thing about this book is that it is straightforward. There's no BS. There's no sugar coating like this is how it is on the street, you know, um, You've got street cred with, with me, you know, oh. I mean, it's it's just and, and, and I, I, I think it's a it's a must read for anybody who's a first responder because you and really cover people who are not in that right. field. Yeah. And, and, and you you really cover different facets of the job, different perspectives, as well as, you know, your own personal experience and your background, which I think is important, but also the other folks, you know, Pat, and Mike and Ilva and, and, you know, some of the other 
drivers, EMTs that, that you worked with and instructors like Nathan. And, you know, I, I keep thinking there's a friend of mine who Nathan, who worked for FDNY. I, I don't know if he still does. Um, I, th- I think he, he was in Brooklyn. I think he was an instructor. So I always think of him, Nathan Mitchell. We actually uh, went to school together years ago. But that's another story. But um, anyway, getting back to the original question, because I got off on a little tangent here. Yeah, but it was so Brittany. flattering. I loved it. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Um, so, so tell us about those goals. So I think it's such a great question. Um, one of my goals was to do what you just described, which was really to just tell it like it is um, and give people who, who aren't on the street an invitation to ride on the ambulance. Like, what does it feel like to ride on an ambulance? Um, what does it feel like to be a, re- a first responder in an emergency? And the book was written in an emergency while I was on the ambulance, while Mike was dying, a- an agonizing death. And we were all separated due to COVID and, and to give them an education about the way the EMS works. So perhaps they can pay and respect EMS workers. Um, so that one of the goals was just to kind of tell the truth, like just tell the truth and and also, you know, in, in a kind of higher way, the, the book was really my, my thanks to EMS, my thanks to Pat and, and Mike for everything that they did for me. One of the most, two of the most touching moments I've had with the book, one was uh, Mike's cousin, Jay, who's a retired California firefighter, texted me, he got the book. And of course I sent him a signed copy and he was very, very present um, in caring for Mike uh, toward the end. And, and you know, of course, uh, was close with Pat and grew up with Pat. And he texted me and said, you know, Jennifer, I just finished your book and I loved it. I loved being a firefighter and I would have fire department dreams after I read your book, like more than usual. But most of all, the parts about Mike and Pat were so special for me. And thank you for writing the book. And it just like made me feel so happy for Mike and Pat um, that they're alive in some way, that there's stories there. And um, yeah, so that for sure, I think was a motivation is just to keep my friends alive. You know, their military veterans will often talk about people are alive as long as you're saying their name. Um, and I think to some extent, especially after so many decades now have passed since 9-11, people are forgetting. People have moved on. Um, and, and as, as we all should, you know, 20 years is enough. There's this talk in the first responder community this year, people who I've gotten together with who've said, it's 20 years, this is the last year. You know, this is the last year I'm going to the firehouse. This is the last year I'm going down to the memorial. 20 years, it's now in, officially in the rear view. It's history. And America is not great at remembering its heroes and its fallen. You know, we, we turn it into a barbecue. The day is coming where people, when people say happy 9-11, just as they do happy Memorial Day. It is, it is coming for us. And so I think the, the main spirit of the book was really just to make Pat and Mike proud 
And as you mentioned, like it's really a book for first responders. Um, the first responder world is a very conservative world. My politics uh, are in direct conflict with a lot of the politics on the street. And, but I love my friends who are first responders and we fight like married couples and siblings and we get into it and then we laugh and hug and they love me despite themselves. Like they can't, they can't help it. And I think this book was also for them. You know, I think it's such a divided moment in the country. It's, there's so much violence and division and people writing each other off for their politics. And, and I just like, I, I can't do that. You know, I can't, I can't, I just can't, there's something in my spirit that won't let me write people off and that has to kind of let them be seen in all of their humanity. And that was very important to me. Um, and then the other moment I had, which I've had a few times is people have finished the book and, and said to me that they got choked up at the end. And these are like hard men who are telling me, you know, I cried in uniform and there are men who just disagree with my politics or disagree with like certain certain aspects of the book and they're still moved to tears. And as a writer, it's the book, the first half of the book is quite an education and it's quite funny. Um, the street is a hilarious place and uh, there's a lot of hilarity in the book, but the second half is a bit of a horror show and it's full of rage and grief. And I think to make people feel and to move the heart is part of a writer's job. And it's also how you change policy. Just to get back to your question is like, if they're not hearing you, you know, say it in a different way. Like let's break some hearts and make them see what actually happened last, last year out there and uh, see what happened to EMTs and paramedics and what we really saw and felt. See what happened after 9-11. 9-11 is not over for the fire department here or the police department. And, and to speak about mental health openly in the book, to talk about suicide and alcoholism and recovery and divorce. It's like, why aren't we talking about all this stuff? It's 2021. Yeah. The community is dying of this stuff. The 9-11 community, those who survived, I would not say by any standards, these people are thriving. Right. They're kind of quietly dropping off of various ailments, if not medical, mental, or, you know, related to substance abuse and domestic issues. And yet nobody, it's like, we can't talk about it. The hero narrative doesn't provide any space for that. And I'm done with that narrative. You right. know, I'm ready to like, let's go to the B side. There's another story here. Yeah. And, and, and I, was, that is it. Like, let's tell a different kind of story. It's the, the story we're hearing is killing people. Right. Yeah. Clearly it was also therapeutic and healing for you to write the book. I, I think, think you're also so. doing service to your readers and the people who've actually lived it to actually help them heal a little bit. Uh, yeah, a paramedic said to me that he helped, it helped him heal. A, a few first responders have said that to me that it helped them. And that, of course, is like a great, a great thing to hear. Um, it did help me. It also, it was a lot. It's a lot to go through something on the street in real life and then to go through it again on the page and then to talk about it. And I mean, I haven't gotten through you know, I just wept uh, on this interview. I have not gotten through a single interview where I haven't been brought to tears by something. So it's, it's helped me, but it's also, it's quite emotional. It's not, I don't think anybody reads books like this for pleasure, right? You, you learn it, you, you, you want to know about a certain world and you want to know what went on out there and you want to know what it's like. That's why people watch so many cop shows. Right. 
right? They're like, we, you know, in America, we're like, we're, we're anti-police at the moment, but nobody can get enough law and order. We'll watch it and we'll watch it until all of the actors are in geriatric age range. <laughs> but, you know, but that's what makes this book different is that um, to use a cliche, you're an open book. Um, you know, you, you, you do open yourself up and, and, you know, you do make yourself vulnerable. Right. And, and that also, you know, the fact that you're able to kind of detail and describe things on the job, you know, and things happening out in the street, you know, you're, you're connecting that for the reader, you know, you're connecting who you are as a person to what's happening on the street to also what's happening with the people that, that you bond with and that you become close to. And, and, you know, there is a certain bond amongst first responders that, you know, it may stretch, it may be flex, but it will never break. No, I mean, the first, I just came back from California and the minute I was wheels down in New York, the first two people I texted were my EMT partner and one of the cops who's in the book named Larry. Um, And it's it's a family. It's for sure a family. And it is a kind of um, an unbelievable community of of people who, who will literally die for each other. Yes. And I think yes. that's the that's the bottom line is, you know, the the life of a life of service is is the question is, you know, do you have skin in the game or not? Are you is your life at risk doing what you're doing for other people or not? Um, and that's a big dividing line between what what we do, whether we do it as volunteers, is that is that there's a it's a high risk. It's a high risk profession and you don't think about that every time you put your uniform on but you certainly have nights where you encounter it you're like well that was a close one you know absolutely and 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 i don't think people realize it and certainly you know in in the first responder world we're 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 kind of in a cocoon right uh because there's things we know that the general public does not i mean i can't tell you how often i get home whether it's from Surfside or, you know, another mass casualty like Marjorie Stoneman or the FIU bridge collapse, there's certain details that I know, you know, that are accurate and verified. And I may listen to a news report or I'm listening to, you know, people talking in the diner about it. And I'm thinking as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking to myself, they have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, that's the, that was one of the most enraging <laughs> and kind of terrifying and, and frustrating things about COVID was you had these, the news and the numbers, and then it was like on the street, an entirely different world and much worse than what people were hearing about. And of course, like I understand the logic of that and shielding the public from what you're seeing on the ground, but at some point it's like the you have to kind of let the lion out and let the truth speak and otherwise uh because it's it's the way new york city ems run is is currently run it's not great for new york city the way we underfund and and disrespect emts and paramedics is bad for new yorkers and the question of the book one of them is certainly who's taking care of these people you know which the resounding answer is we take care of each other slash no one 
is taking care of us. And you know, the, the other question is, have we learned anything since 9-11 on the 911 emergency system? And you know, it only takes a snowstorm or a heat wave to, and the whole thing collapses. It's, it's really, it's like the infrastructure and the system in New York City, the, the dating, these radios that we carry that weigh as much as like a child's lunchbox that don't work in the project. Like, right, it's, right. it's unbelievable. It's like, this is 2021. We have phones that we can wave in the air that will catch a song and download it for us. But if I'm on the seventh floor of the project, like I can't communicate with my dispatcher. And Correct. so I guess I'll die. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. These are problems from like the 70s. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely you know? right. And what's what's the next step for Jennifer? Oh, it's exciting. Um, I have no idea. Uh, the <laughs> next, <laughs> I mean, this I'm kind of a it's such a strange world to think about the future because it's so uncertain, um, as Vanessa kind of spoke to earlier, but I, I, for now, I mean, I'm excited to have some events for the book coming up. Like, you know, I was speaking to you today. I'm talking to another chaplain, I hope in the week having coffee and I have, I'm reading it. The Bryant, Bryant park has an author's event on Wednesday. So it's a big outdoor event and I'm on a memoir panel on Wednesday. So you know, there's discussions also with my TV and film agent of, um, you know, getting this into a, a show format, which is those conversations are in discussion. And for me, I'm very, very, very happy to say I'm just writing again. I just went to Bakersfield. So I saw my mom and Bakersfield is a very <laughs> rich place, a very rich landscape. So I'm writing an essay about visiting my mom in Bakersfield. And no, really, the, the question is, what book am I going to write next? Because I think I, as long as I'm at my writing desk, I'm very happy. And I'll be on the ambulance next Tuesday with one of my favorite partners. And uh, who's and that? Who's you? Who's one of your Nina. favorite? Nina. Nina. Yes. She's mentioned in the book. Everybody, uh, the, you know, readers are telling me people have their favorite characters. Uh, yes. And I'm like, well, you know, they're not characters. They're real people. But people are obsessed with Nina. They love Larry. They love Tommy. Like, they, they of course, love, love Mike and Pat and Ilva. Felice is a big hit. Like, I mean, I mean, one of the things I think that happens at funerals, as, as we know, because in the service world, we go to a fair share of them, is that your whole life comes together. And there are all these different parts of your community when you're alive that don't know each other. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm in recovery, like my sober friends don't necessarily hang out with my friends who I go to brunch with on weekends who have martinis. And those people don't necessarily hang out with my 24 year old EMT partner who doesn't necessarily hang out with the CEO of a business who calls me to crisis. But one of the things the book was, you know, attempting to do is really offer my life up as an example of like, here are my people. You know, if you're in the book, you're my person and, and you've impacted my heart and the way that I move through the world and I want you to know each other. And so, you know, it's very exciting to me to kind of bring these worlds together. Um, so yes, Nina is one of my favorite people in the world. She's like a sister, wife, daughter. I feel very protective of her, yet she bosses me around constantly on the ambulance, even though she's 20 years younger than I am. And we laugh harder than I laugh with almost anyone every time we ride. So yeah, we're going out on Tuesday night. Awesome. I'm excited to meet all of these characters. You will, you will. And I will send you a box of signed books that you can give away to first responders. I mean, part of the, the hope with this book is to, to, to be of service. So if you, if there are people that you know, who are 
uh, in the field and want a book, I'm happy to, to send. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we, we just had, uh, yesterday we had a graduation ceremony for 15 new firefighter EMTs in our city. Nice. And it's the most diverse group we've ever had. Um, which is great. Uh, probably, I, I believe more females than we've ever had in a graduating uh-huh. class, uh, more minorities. So we're just so excited, so excited about that. That's really great. nice, diverse group. And, uh, and, and I, I think they need to hear this story. I really do. It's a memoir of life, death, and love on New York City's front lines, First Responder by Jennifer Murphy. Yes. We need to get that book. Absolutely. Thank and you both so much for having me today. No, thank you. Any any closing comments? No, no. I think I think we covered a lot of territory. I mean, I think the the heart of the book is in there, and readers bring what they, you know, the the there are paramedics who worked COVID who read the book who have a very difficult time reading the COVID sections. There are 9/11 first responders who have a very difficult time with the Pat and Mike narrative. And then there are people who are kind of drawn to different aspects of the book. And I'm, I'm a big fan of like, let the writer sit back, let the book speak. And I think like it or don't like it, it the part that you can't really deny is that it has a big broken heart in it. And you will meet a, a kind of chorus of American voices that we rarely get to hear. And they're important. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and your book is available on Amazon, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound, Bookshop, you name it. Um, it's available. If you go to an independent bookstore, if you want to support them, they'll, they'll order it for you. And yes. if you're a first responder, they can go through you or contact me through my website and I'll get them a signed copy. Excellent. Excellent. And I know I know books are magic there in Brooklyn. Books are magic still has copies for first responders as well. Yep. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, and that's in Brooklyn and Cobble Hill. All right. Excellent. Uh, any any closing thoughts, Vanessa? Just thank you for being on the show and sharing your story. Thank and you open so the much. eyes of people who are not in that community to something that really needs to be heard. Thank you. I really appreciate both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> So you've been tuned to the Michael Calderon show with co-host Vanessa Reyes. We thank you so much for tuning in. You can listen to previous shows. If you just go to anchor and look up the Michael Calderon show, we're also available on Spotify and Apple iTunes. We thank you so much for tuning in and we'll talk to you again.